So I'm going to uh, invite you to come on back and take your seats. And you can grab a beverage as you do so. And we'll continue with our morning. Now remember, uh, you'll have some time just after we're finished to uh, make sure you go back and check on your bid to see if it is the successful or winning bid. So, well, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho, and it's our privilege to have you with us this morning. Now, this morning, I want to ask you, what would happen if, as you were writing a Valentine or a greeting card, every third word was omitted from that card. So your Valentine would read, I love blank in there. Might be a little tricky to figure out. Or uh, your Valentine poem, if you omitted every third word in your Valentine poem. Roses are blank, violets are, sugar is, and so you. It really doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Leaves a lot to the imagination. So. Uh, songs. What if you omitted the third word in, uh, let's pick a Stevie Wonder song. I just to say love you, just called say how I care. That one actually almost works. Almost. It sounds like a Neanderthal wrote it other than Stevie Wonder, but it, you still kind of get the idea across. But what if you skipped every third word in the Bible? <laughs> this would get a little bit trickier to get an accurate grasp of what's going on. For God loved the he gave one and son that believed in shall not but have life. Mm, still we're not quite catching it. So try it over lunch. Try skipping every third word in your sentence. It's actually tricky to even practice it a little bit. And see if you can still communicate effectively what it is that you're trying to get across. Now the reason that I bring this whole skipping the third thing up is because in the tradition that I grew up in, we skipped or de-emphasized something critically important in God's character and in his nature. You see, in the tradition that I grew up in, we would talk about God the Father lots. We would talk about Jesus the Son, and then there was that other guy that we never talked about. So even baptisms were kind of intriguing. I baptize you, they would say, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just kind of omitted or get it out of the way in some way. And it was as if for me growing up in that tradition that we were skipping or ignoring the third person in the Trinity. And without the Holy Spirit, the story doesn't make much sense, does it? You only have two-thirds of God. Well, over the past three weeks, we've been exploring in the scriptures the big picture of the Bible. And we've been trying to wrestle with the question, what is this book all about anyways? And if you were to try and explain it to someone that was asking you, what is the Bible all about? How would you go about answering that question? And so we've reminded ourselves and suggested that the purpose of the Bible isn't just so we can get more information about God, but that we actually want to grow in our experience and understanding of his heart and character and gain some traction, not just knowledge in our lives. We've suggested that the Bible is a massive book and that there's lots of different uh, genres of literature in it. There's lots of different things for us to wrestle with in historical context. But we've also suggested that 
we could try and break the Bible down into kind of four parts or four movements or four words of understanding and exploring what the Bible is all about. So this is based on a book by Jarrett Stevens called Four Small Words, and he's written a very helpful and brief book, and he's given permission for us to use that framework here at Jericho. And the goal is for us to grow in and gain an understanding again of the Bible. And not only God's story in the Bible, but also our stories as individuals. So the four words that cover the scope of the Bible are of, which is the beginning of the story, between, which is the story of separation, the Old Testament, with, which Mike talked about last week, the story of Jesus and the Gospels, and then today we're going to focus on the story of the rest of the New Testament in a people inhabited by God. So two weeks ago, I uh, attempted to cover the whole of the Old Testament in one message, and this morning I'm going to attempt to cover the whole of the New Testament in one message. But I'll give you a clue. This actually is a message about the Holy Spirit, not so much about an overview of the content of the New Testament, because the emphasis of the New Testament is really the writers wrestling with the implications of Jesus' work and what it means for us. And so as we go through the book of Acts and into the epistles and through into even Revelation, we come to understand more about God's work and purpose in history and in our lives as well. But we have to go back to the beginning to understand where we come from. So we have of, the beginning of the story, and that is, you'll remember, the story of our true identity, that we've been created in the image of God, and it's been out of the overflow of a loving community of the Trinity that God has created the world, and he proclaimed and declared it is good. But we saw right away in Genesis chapter 3 that things have entered into God's world that have distorted his purposes, and there's a problem. Things are not as they created to be by God. Relationships are broken. There's sickness. There's division. There's enmity. Creation, even we sang already in one of the songs, is longing to be restored because it's been subjected, the scriptures remind us, to decay, to captivity. And so the first movement of the story is the story and of our created identity of beauty and goodness and perfect relationship with God. But the second act of the story begins so quickly in Genesis chapter 3. That is a tragedy, and it's a tragedy marked by separation from God. And this is that second word, between. That sin is to come between us and God. And the second act of the story lasts a long, long time. The whole of the Old Testament, in fact. And so the story of separation from God and from each other, where God is building bridge after bridge after bridge to try and repair relationships and demonstrate his grace. But people are still intent upon building wall after wall between them and God. But God is still faithful. He's faithful to his promises to redeem and to restore that lost relationship. So last week we moved into the third act of the story, the story of God with us, the entrance of the promised one, Messiah, Savior, Jesus, come to redeem and rescue. And God has finally, after centuries, moved into history in a profound and particular way and satisfied and anticipated the provisional longings made in the Old Testament and made a way to bridge that gap that sin has created. And so we see in Jesus, in his life, in his birth, 
in his death, in his burial, his resurrection and ascension, that God is with us in a particular way in history. God has come to save people from the penalty of sin. But even in that part of the story, it's not the climax of the story yet. Because the amazing thing is the story's actually just getting exciting. You see, Jesus made a promise while he was here on earth. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And in John 14, verses 16 and 17, we read this promise, a stunning promise that Jesus made to his followers. And he says this, I will ask the Father, and I will, he will give you another advocate, a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and does not recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later he will be in you. So Jesus is promising his followers of this movement from with to in. And in has always been the point of the story because God gives us in the New Testament two massive gifts. The first one is the gift of Jesus. And then Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to his followers, yeah, it's better actually if I step out of the picture. If I go, you will receive something better than me. And I always thought, that's an incredible statement. I mean, think about how incredibly wonderful it would have been to be on the earth at the time of Jesus, to be walking with Jesus, to see him performing healings and miraculous signs. And Jesus says, yeah, it's better actually if I go because then the Holy Spirit will come and even greater things, Jesus says, will happen. You will do even greater things than this. Jesus makes this incredible promise that the gift of the Spirit, the gift of God in his people and in the world is even greater than the gift of Jesus being with people. And so the final word that sums up the writings and reflections and wrestlings of the New Testament is this word in. That God would choose to live in people in something so powerful, so game-changing that we often struggle to understand it. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why there's so much fighting amongst Christians about the work of the Holy Spirit. But one way to understand what this relationship of God living in us looks like and how you can actively experience that is to look at those who first experienced it, the early followers of Jesus. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see an incredible and powerful story of the movement of God from with his people to being in his people. I like the way that Stephen summarizes this in his book, Four Small Words. He reminds us that up to this point in the story, God has always been present. But somehow there's always been distance still. God's been present in the garden, but separated by that thin divine line of differentiation between creator and create. God's been present through the Old Testament, through the covenants, through priests, through prophets and kings, but those still have been separated by sin. 
God's been present in Jesus, who's like us in every way with the exception of the, his perfection. And so God was for the first time in Jesus present in the world in very present fashion, flesh and bone, but these very limbs and ligaments that would be his limitation because the power of his presence was confined to a specific location, the contingency of proximity. So the only way to physically be with Jesus was to be lucky enough to happen to be in the town that he was in and passing through or on the hill that he happened to be teaching from or in the tree that he happened to be walking by with the story of Zacchaeus. But yet as Jesus prepares to leave the earth and return to heaven, he spells out what's going to happen next. In Acts 1.8, he says, listen, you're going to receive something. Actually, you're going to receive someone. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And this is new. This is different. God now is not only coming into the world, but he's coming into human beings. And so Jesus says, you need to wait in Jerusalem for this to happen. And waiting is hard work because Jesus doesn't actually give them a timeline as to how long they should wait. He just says, wait. Now we know, looking at the text, we have the benefits of hindsight. There's actually 40 days. And this is actually one of the reasons why in the Christian tradition we get a history of practices of things like Lent, which is 40 days leading into Easter. And Lent is a little bit like Advent. It's preparing our hearts uh, for, again, a celebration of Easter. And a lot of times in the Christian tradition, people will give up things or fast from things. And so it's only been four days for some of you, but some of you are already eagerly waiting for Easter, the 27th of March, when you can eat chocolate again, or when you can go on Facebook again, or whatever it is that you gave up for Lent this year. So waiting is sort of built in to the Christian tradition. Now, the period of waiting that the early disciples and followers of Jesus had was actually also 40 days from Easter to the Feast of Pentecost. And the Feast of Pentecost was in Jewish tradition where they celebrated, celebrated the coming of the first fruits. That first harvest was taken at that time. And so they had an incredible national celebration of the fact that the first fruits were coming and then it was like a deposit that God was, they were saying, God, thank you for your faithfulness. We anticipate more of this will come. And so God in his wisdom and providence chooses that very day to say, I'm gonna send the first fruits of my spirit upon my people. And so 40 days after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit, they're gathered, there's about 120 of them gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, and they're worshiping in song, they're praying, and the Holy Spirit is poured out in power. And it's like a wind moves through that place. And it's like a fire alights and fills and alights on each person who's gathered there. And they begin to spontaneously manifest the fullness and presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And they begin by speaking boldly and witnessing to the things that God has done. And they speak in bold witness in languages that some of them have never learned and spoken in before. And people on the street down below begin to hear this and see this. And they begin to say, what in the world is going on? 
And some think that the most logical explanation for what has happened is that the disciples are drunk. But Peter stands up and preaches a powerful response and a powerful message and says to them, you want to know what's being poured out? Yeah, it's a spirit, but it's not that kind of spirit. It's not magic whiskey in any way. This is categorically a different kind of spirit that's being poured out. Peter looks back into the Old Testament and he says, you know what, do you remember the prophet Joel who said that my spirit will be poured out on all flesh, young and old, men and women. They'll dream dreams. They'll have prophetic visitations. Jesus promised that this would happen. And this is it, Peter says. This is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And this is big stuff because this movement from with to in changes the whole story. See, it changed my whole story. See, I, I told you at the beginning that I grew up in a tradition that largely ignored the Holy Spirit. But as I grew up, I became a teenager and we moved. And I became a nut part of another tradition that was all about the movement of the Holy Spirit. And so I began to see things that I had no explanation for and no category to put them in. I began to hear people teach on things like miraculous gifts of healing and then people were prayed for and were healed. Things like prophecy and tongues and these were not part of my mental category growing up in any way, shape or form. And when I think about it now, I actually went from one of the most conservative denominations in Canada to one of the most spirit-focused denominations in Canada in less than 24 months. And there was a little bit of spiritual whiplash that came along with that transition for me. And it was a lot of wrestling to try and figure out and grow and, and figure out what I was seeing and experiencing and compare that with the scriptures because I'd never encountered some of this before. And it brought up tons of questions for me. Like, well, what in the world is the Holy Spirit for? Why is he even given? Is the Spirit like a ghost? Is it like the Force, like Star Wars, some kind of impersonal entity that inhabits us all, and some people can channel more effectively than others? It sounded like pantheism or panentheism to me. That didn't sound biblical, but people talked about the Holy Spirit sometimes like that, so I was confused. And there were lots of other things that confused me. Some people argued very strongly the Spirit was given to you at conversion when you received Jesus. And then uh, other people argued just as strongly that you got God the Father and the Son in that event and that you had to then have a second event that then that's when the Holy Spirit came. I had friends that would argue powerfully and convincingly that all of that stuff was was dead and that we didn't need any of that stuff for today. That was just poured out in the uh, to get the church kind of kick-started and then now we're just on our own to figure it all out. And then other people who said, oh no, all of those things are for today. And so for me, it was very confusing to try and wrestle some of these things to the ground. And there was so much controversy and so many questions that maybe bubble up in your heart and your mind as well. Sometimes it's just easier to kind of think, I don't know, I'm not going to do any of the hard work and kind of wrestle how I think and, and experience the Holy Spirit through that. We'll just let other people worry about that stuff or other traditions worry about that stuff. But I think that's laziness. I think that's a poor excuse for not getting to know more and experience what it means for God to be present in the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because then you're living with a two-thirds experience of God. 
I love the way author Francis Chan puts this in his book, The Forgotten God. The subtitle of it is genius, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. And he reminds us that the point is not to somehow figure everything out about the Holy Spirit, not to completely understand God. The point is to worship God. And so let the very fact that you can't know all of these things fully lead you to praise him for his infiniteness and his grandeur. And so for me, that's what pushes me to really learn and grow and study and think more carefully about the Holy Spirit. Our confession of faith articulates the person and work of the Spirit in this way. It says this, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, is the creative power, presence, and wisdom of God. The Spirit convicts people of sin. The Spirit gives them new life, guides them into all truth. By the Spirit, believers are baptized into one body. The indwelling Spirit testifies that God, that we are God's children, distributes gifts for ministry, empowers us for witness, produces the fruit of righteousness. As the Comforter, the Holy Spirit helps God's children in their weaknesses, intercedes for them according to God's will, and assures them of eternal life. See, these are things for me I want more of in my life. I want more for you of in your life. I want God's wisdom for my life. I want to be guided into truth. I want that for you. As I continue to grow in my understanding and love for the Holy Spirit, I find it helpful to boil all of the controversy and questions down into kind of two basic questions. And we're not going to be able to cover all of the, those things today, but we'll get at two basic questions. The first one is, who is the Holy Spirit? And then the second is, when we look through the Bible, what does the Spirit do? So firstly, who is the Holy Spirit? Much of the New Testament wrestles with this question. But we can say two basic things about that. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. When we look through the New Testament, the language that is used to describe the Holy Spirit is personal language. The Spirit has feelings of affection. Sadness can be grieved. The Spirit can feel rejected. The Spirit has a will. Holy Spirit speaks, has thoughts, teaches, witnesses, prays, searches. The Spirit has desires, convicts, convinces. These are attributes of personhood because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is fully equal to God the Father and Jesus the Son. In Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 8 rather, verse 9 to 11, we actually see the language used interchangeably, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. There were big fights about this in the early church. Big, big fights. So in the 4th century, they actually had to convene a council and try and figure out, what do we think about the Holy Spirit then? How do we feel about this? So they gathered and they came up with the creeds that still are agreed to to this day, the Nicene Creed, part of which reads, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a person equal to God the Father and the Son, not a lower class member of the Trinity. 
The Holy Spirit is a person because he assures the children of God of their new relationship with God. The relational language that's used is all over the New Testament. Romans 8 again says, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you by the spirit as his own children. And now by the spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. For his spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. See, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, already we're talking about the miraculous possibility of being able to have a relationship with God. And so this is the funny part of language. A lot of times in evangelical circles, we'll talk about asking Jesus into your heart. But the scriptures la- scriptural language is, is much different than that. The scriptural language is, is much more about the spirit being in us. And so we get a little bit sometimes confused and interchanging language there. But unlike any other religion, God has been invited to come and live in us. The person of the spirit comes and dwells in person of the spirit brings unity to the church john chapter 17 so the holy spirit is a person now having said all of that we need to be careful like mike reminded us yesterday that when we say or last week rather that it's it's incredibly important not to domesticate or gentrify almighty god so by saying that the holy spirit is a person we don't and are not saying that he's walking around in a physical body like jesus did when he was here on earth. Because while the Holy Spirit has the characteristics of personhood, the Holy Spirit is also an indwelling presence or the indwelling presence of God. So the way to think about this is that not that God is somehow merely out there or back there in history and was doing those things with some people in Acts chapter 2. No, God is living in you if you have said yes to him and opened your life up to him. And we see this language all throughout the New Testament, that the Spirit is the indwelling presence of God. The Spirit is given as a sign or as a mark of our relationship with God at conversion. And so there's two primary languages that are used in the New Testament. There's baptism and there's filling. And I like the way, again, our confession of faith explains this by saying the baptism of the Spirit is that experience of believer at conversion. And this is symbolized for us by water baptism. It's a one-time experience. It's Romans chapter 8, 9 through 11 teaches that uh, if you don't have, Romans 9 says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you're not part of Christ. Meaning that the spirit comes as a part of the package when you come to saving faith in Christ and through Christ. And we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that this is a, concurring set or series of events so scripture doesn't give a lot of weight to a dramatic emotional post-conversion experience that is needed to live the full christian life now on the other hand the new testament uses this language of filling though to describe so we have the language of baptism to describe the coming of the spirit then we have the language of filling so The way to maybe think about this is when you're initially saved and come to saving faith, you receive and step into a relationship with God, and so you receive the Holy Spirit. But you still need to grow in 
your relationship with and surrender to the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 talks about this. This is the language of filling or being continuously filled with the Spirit. So it's not just a one-time event that could be described as a baptism, but then there is a continuous filling or desire for those who walk in relationship with God to walk in an ongoing and deeper and deeper surrender to the purposes and plans of God and growing in that. That filling then produces something in our lives. As we encounter and grow in more of the Spirit, then that produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So filling is walking in deeper obedience to the Spirit of God. And as we make that intentional act of surrendering and allowing God to control more of our lives, then we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit continually grow. So we're already actually starting to get to the second question, that what does the Spirit do? Because it's hard to talk about the one without the other. But at least we've identified the Holy Spirit as a person, but it's also the indwelling presence of God. So what does the Holy Spirit actually also do? What does the Scripture teach us about the work of the Spirit? What should I expect in my life if I say, yep, I have surrendered my life to Jesus. I would identify as a Christian. I want to walk in obedience to God. Like, what should you expect the Holy Spirit to do in you, to you, through you? Well, I'll briefly suggest four things that all start with the letter T, because pastors love alliteration. So the first thing that the Spirit does is the Spirit comforts us. The Spirit comforts us. In Psalm 139, verse 7, the psalmist asked the question, where should I go to get away from the Spirit of God? And the clear answer is, yeah, nowhere. That's not a possibility. And we're reminded over and over and over through the Old and New Testament that the Spirit of God is present to bring comfort to those who mourn. When Jesus announces his ministry, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? To anoint the anointing for with ministry for power to the sick, to those who need to hear a message of being far from God, but also for a message of comfort to those who mourn. The Spirit in 2 Corinthians says, God comforts you by His Spirit so that when you receive comfort, you can also then extend that comfort that you have received from the Spirit to those around you. You can comfort others. So some of you today need comfort. Some of you today need healing from your past. Some of you come into this place this morning battered, and beaten down by a challenges of life from this week, and you feel dejected, and you feel remorseful. And you need to come for prayer, because you need the God of all comfort to speak into your life by His Holy Spirit. And we're going to pray for you this morning that God would release by His Holy Spirit comfort into your life, because He desires to comfort you this morning. Now, that doesn't mean that somehow... Holy Spirit is some kind of magic band-aid that you put on any boo-boo that you have in your life and that, boom, God's obligated to just take those things away. But God can speak powerfully into those places of hurt in your life and bring healing and bring comfort if you desire and open yourself up to that. 
So Holy Spirit brings comfort. Secondly, the Spirit brings counseling. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10. And then in Jesus' witness in the book of John, chapter 14 and chapter 16, excellent two chapters to read about the work and role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says again and again and again, you're going to receive counsel from the Holy Spirit. And the reason you're going to receive counsel from the Spirit is because you're going to go ask them. And you're going to need it. So I'm going to send the Spirit to you because the Spirit's going to be the one that pulls you back into that alignment with my heart and with my will. The Spirit is a teaching Spirit, a counselor, one who reveals the Father's heart and will and plan to us. I'm amazed how many people I talk to, they go through their life and just say, I just wish I knew God's will for my life. I just, I don't know, I don't know. I said, have you prayed about it and asked God by his spirit to reveal his will to you? No, I've never thought about that. God desires by his spirit to give you counsel. And so some of you today are asking, what is God's will for my life? You need to come for prayer and we'll stand with you and pray that God would reveal and counsel you. You need direction. Some of you are faced with very complicated challenges in your life. And you have the option of going at, at it your own. But God's saying to you today, maybe this morning by his spirit, I want to give you counsel and wisdom. Would you let me? Maybe you're faced with a complicated set of decisions. You need the Holy Spirit's guidance and counsel to be the wisdom of God. Because the Holy Spirit will show and reveal truth to us. He'll teach us what we need to know and reveal God to us. Holy Spirit comforts us, secondly counsels us. I love the way that uh, theologian Karl Barth puts this. He says, when we are at our wit's end for an answer, then the Holy Spirit can give us an answer. But how can he give us an answer when we are still well supplied with all sorts of answers of our own? See, if you have all the answers to the questions... First of all, I'm going to suggest to you that you're not asking big enough questions or you're asking the wrong questions. But certainly, if you have all the answers to all the questions, you don't need the Holy Spirit. But if you feel not well supplied with all of the answers to all of the challenges in life, then that's the role of the Spirit to teach and give wisdom and counsel. Because if your life can be fully explained without the Holy Spirit, and without bringing the Holy Spirit into the conversation, then there is a problem with your life as a Christian. Because you're not walking in a place where you need the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom or counsel. And so that means everything about your life is natural instead of supernatural. So you need the Holy Spirit to counsel you. The third C, conviction. The Holy Spirit's role is to attract the lost to Jesus. Now, this is an area where sometimes I get into trouble because I feel like, for me, I get excited and I want to, you know, the scriptures says do the work of evangelism. It's not my primary gift, but I pray and I say, well, Holy Spirit, I want to do the work of evangelism. But sometimes I get a little bit confused as to what part of the work of convicting the world of sin is the Holy Spirit's role and what part is my role. And sometimes I just get offside on that. And it's like the Holy Spirit has to say to me, hey, Brad. You can just take, uh, uh, stop doing my job for a few minutes in this conversation, would you please? Because remember, uh, like it's my role to convict the world of sin, and you've kind of overstepped a little on this one in this conversation, so just let me do my work, and you do the work that I will invite you to partner with, 
in that place and in that role. Because God gives us the privilege of partnering with him. But I find sometimes that I'm tempted to usurp my authority and start doing God's job of bringing conviction to people's lives. And just as a general rule, I have found it's not a good idea to try and do God's job for him. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean just be silent and say, okay, well, the Spirit's going to do all the work of, of convicting the world of sin and calling people to Jesus. It's not to say we don't speak out in truth and love and call people to change and call people to repentance and faith. But there's a partnership that happens there. And we need to clearly pray and ask for wisdom as to what our part is. Now, for you, maybe you're here today. And maybe when you come into a place like yours where you feel something stirring in your heart, you feel a level of discontent with your spiritual life. And whenever you come to a place like this or whenever you hear somebody talk about God, something begins to stir and feel like it's getting swirled up inside of you. And it feels a little bit scary and it feels a little bit unfamiliar. But there's also a sense of longing that comes alongside of that as well. And a sense that though everything looks good on the outside, deep in your innermost part of your life, you know that all is not well. There's a sense of unsettledness and deep fear when you think about things like death or you think about your life. And friend, that may actually be the work of the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention, trying to draw you to a place of recognition of your need for God, that you would come to a place where you would walk into that place of willingness to acknowledge your need for him and experience a conviction of sin and a desire to turn to God and repent. So I would say to you today, don't dull that in any way. Don't brush it aside. Respond to it. Walk towards it. Say, okay, God, I need to know, are you bringing conviction into my life? And responding to that, maybe today for you for the first time, would be saying, God, I'm sorry, I acknowledge that you're bringing this up in my life because you want to convict me of my sin, of doing my life on my own. I'm sorry for that. Come, cleanse, fill me. Thank you for your love. I receive your love. Thank you for loving me. And that's the work of God to bring conviction of sin. And so if that's you today, come and talk to me. Come and talk to the person who brought you. We'd love to help you make that decision. It's the most important decision you'll make in your life. The Spirit brings comfort, counsel, conviction. The Spirit also brings correction. John chapter 16, Romans chapter 1. The Spirit's job is to bring attention to things in your life that need repentance. This is a job sometimes I wish the Spirit did not do in my life. Because the Spirit searches. It's like a giant searchlight. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God. Search me, Spirit of God. Point out any offensive ways in me. That is a gutsy and challenging prayer to pray because God will do that by His Spirit and bring correction to you. The Spirit the text says, searches our hearts, knows us, desires to bring us back on course when we stray out of a deep sense of love and compassion. I find the way that this works for me is sometimes when I'm praying and asking God this, God will direct my thoughts back to a conversation that I had 
and I'll be replaying it, and, I'll, and it's like, God, what, why are you taking me there? And it's like I'll be thinking about the conversation, God, okay, because you said some things that I need you to repent of. And then you need to go and repent to that person of saying those things too. Oh, great, I did pray that you would search my heart. All right, Lord, fair enough. Or the work of the Spirit inviting you to repent, and sometimes I'm directed back to a word that I spoke in anger or a situation where I was less than truthful, and then I have to go and say, all right, God, first and foremost, I'm going to ask and thank you for the correcting work of your spirit in this place now. I repent of that. Would you forgive me? And then now, what do you want me to do out of that? It's a powerful prayer that the work of the spirit invites us to places of repentance. Because the spirit desires to help us walk into those places of liberty and obedience and faith and joy and peace. And maybe for you today... As we respond and worship in song in a few minutes, maybe for you today, you think to yourself, God, it's been a very long time since I've actually prayed that prayer and said, God, would you search me? Would you point out anything in my life that you were displeased with or that you want to put your finger on? And so maybe for you today, that's your action and it's a response of repentance. You would go and say, God, put the searchlight on my heart, my motives, my thoughts, my words. If there's anything that you point out for correction, I'm willing to walk in faithful obedience. Now, I want to pause here for a minute and suggest particularly that there's a few areas that you might want to ask the Holy Spirit for to take assessment in your heart this morning. So there's an insert in your info sheet. And if you'll take that out, the flip side is uh, look at the side that's entitled Encounter, Meet and Move in the Holy Spirit. There's a bit of a process there that is laid out for learning to live more fully a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I want to say something today, and that is that some of you are blocked in this encounter because of a lack of belief in the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Maybe something has happened in your past where you've been... Uh, you've seen something that either scared you or you didn't understand, and you said, I don't want any part of that. I don't know what that is. And granted, there are excesses and there are things that have been done in the name of the Holy Spirit that are not of God. But maybe something's happened to you in your past where you've shunned or walked away from or actively resisted the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And maybe for you, that's created a sense of fear or distance from the Spirit's work maybe you've spoken things out loud and said i don't want any of that weird stuff to ever happen to me that i saw or experienced maybe you've scoffed at the ministry of the holy spirit you've heard a prophetic word spoken and you've said i don't believe any of that stuff that's not for me that's not for today maybe god has desired to pour a gift from his spirit out into your heart and you've said god i don't want that i'm going to actively resist that Friends, the Spirit is not going to force himself onto the lives of those who continuously reject him. And so I'm convinced that here today, some of us need to do some repenting for the way in which we have willfully or passively neglected the Spirit of God and grieved God by a lack of faith. And so for some of you, maybe you need to actually spend time there and and actually ask God, is there anything that I have done to grieve you, Holy Spirit, and actively block and resist your work 
in my life. Ask God to bring those moments to your, to your mind and repent of them. And say, God, Holy Spirit, I love you. I desire for you to come in fullness and in power in my life. You are welcome in my life to move in and through me. Our team is going to come and they're going to lead us in three songs of response. And they're all focused around this theme of obedience and an invitation to be filled by the Holy Spirit. I was struck again by this link of obedience and fullness of the Spirit. Again, as we were reading this past week in our life journaling, in Acts chapter 5, the early apostles say in Acts 5.32, we are witnesses of these things, which is one of the primary roles of the Spirit, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey Him. See, if you desire to walk in obedience and greater obedience to God, that happens as you open up your life to the person and presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Obedience to the Spirit and desiring for God to be glorified by His Spirit are intimately linked. And so is being filled with the Spirit and being a faithful witness in the world. And so the Spirit desires today to fill, to empower you, to comfort you, to sustain you. And so our prayer teams here, we have Gary and Betty at the back and myself and Allie, and we've been praying for you already this week. And we'd love to be a part of the privilege of praying for you now. And so I expect we'll just meet at the three mats on the back there. We'll be available for prayer. So each of those three teams will be on one of those mats at the back there. And we would invite you to just come and receive prayer and be filled with the Spirit. So let me pray for you. I'm going to invite you to stand as we continue in this spirit of worship and prayer. So, Father, we say here in this place today that we love you. We say, Jesus, that we need you. And we say, Holy Spirit, you are wise and good and perfect in all of your ways, and we desire you. Power and presence of God, divine gift to all of God's people. You convict us of sin. We need it. You give us new birth. We desire it. You guide us into all truth. You enrich our lives with gifts for service. You cultivate the fruit of maturity in our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, divine comforter and counselor, you pray for us when we don't know how to pray for. You baptize us into one body. You give us a foretaste of the glory to come. Spirit, we say we love you. We welcome you. Come and fill us. Live in us. Inhabit this place, Jesus. Inhabit your people. We ask this in faith today.